as I said, we're going to be in Galatians 4. And so uh, this morning, I, while we, before we do that, I'd like to thank um, our elders who love and serve this church in a variety of different ways, care about this church, are perpetually finding ways to um, love and serve this church however they can. We have our, our elders just, even in just in their own personal time, taking time to, uh, they pray for you every week, every day. You are being prayed for and prayed over by the elders of this church. Um, the elders think and carry a lot of different weights in a lot of different ways. And uh, I'm so honored and thankful that I get to serve alongside those men uh, and all the ways that they love and care and lead this church. So uh, Dave, Wayne, and Daniel, thank you for all the ways that you love us and care for us and, uh, and lead us, especially in these last few years of, uh, of what has been uh, a weird couple of years. So thank you guys. Um, all right, so Galatians 4 is where we are this morning, um, walking through this book, this letter that Paul has written to the church in churches in Galatia, and Paul has been showing some very great care and concern for the people in these churches. In multiple different ways throughout this letter, he has attempted to convince and convict and call them back to the freedom that they have in Christ, the freedom that we have in Christ. And between the verses that we looked at last week and the ones we're going to look at this morning, we see Paul's motives shine through, his heart really on display. Motives and heart, that's kind of what the theme is for this morning. It's what we're talking about this morning. And I love that last line in Indescribable. God sees our hearts, knows our hearts, and he loves us the same. Even though we are flawed, we have sin in us, even though we are not perfect, God sees us, God knows us, God loves us, and he loved us so much he sent his son to die for us, and he loves us the same. But this morning, we're going to talk about our motives, our heart on display. C.S. Lewis uh, said this about motives. He said, there are rewards that do not sully motives. A man's love for a woman is not mercenary because he wants to marry her, nor his love for poetry mercenary because he wants to read it, nor his love of exercise less disinterested because he wants to run and leap and walk. Love, by definition, seeks to enjoy its object. Joyce Meyer says, a relationship with Christ changes your heart. It's not about your head, it changes your heart. Jesus comes to live in your heart, and even if a person does good works, but they do them without Christ, most of the time their motives are wrong for why they do them. What are your motives? Why do you do what you do? Why do you live how and where you do? This kind of ties to Encanto, actually, and kind of like what is the thing that drives us? If you've seen Encanto, if you have kids, you've seen Encanto. Um, why do you work where you work and do what you do? Why do you go to school where you go to school? Why do you treat people the way that you do? What drives you? What is your passion? What are your motivations? Paul's motivation throughout this letter and really throughout his life once he meets Jesus is to make Jesus known. He wants people to know the goodness of God. And so everything he did was driven by that motivation. So I ask you, what drives you? And we aren't going to have time to answer that. That's a thing for you to take home. That's some homework for you. What is that thing that drives you? What is that thing that makes you do the things you do that colors every decision that you make? I'm going to pray. We're going to jump in to Galatians 4. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for, uh, Lord, even for, for the snow. We, love it. we live in a city where we get to experience all of the seasons and all of them. 
and the changing from one to the another and, and seeing them in their fullness on, on days kind of like today remind us of your power, of your control, of your creativity, of your ability to give us these different experiences, to reveal yourself in different ways. God, we thank you for being a God who is invested and involved in our world. God, I pray for uh, the kids of our church. Um, those, that next generation, those next generations. Lord, help us parents as uh, members of this church to love them well, to care for them well, to uh, emulate Christ to them in the way that we interact with one another, in the way that we as parents lead and raise them, in the way that in the way that we worship, in the way that they see us worship, in the way that we live our lives. Help us to uh, love and point them toward you. God, as we continue through this global pandemic, um, it's hard and it's exhausting and at times has been just overwhelming and isolating. But nothing in the midst of any of this has caught you off guard, has been shocking to you, has uh, made you rethink anything or challenge or change any of who you are or what you do. Over and over, we are reminded you are in control of all things. God, we ask for safety. We ask uh, for healing. We ask for, um, God, we ask for you to do a mighty and awesome thing. You are literally the only one who could make this go away. God, we ask that you would do that. We ask that you would remove this pandemic that you would remove this issue, that you would heal, that you would give strength. And Lord, we pray not only for those affected by it, but those who are caring for them, our frontline workers, our, our, those caregivers, those in hospitals, those all over who are, who are affected by this. Lord, we ask for strength, we ask for protection, we ask for you to step in and move. And God, as we... Uh, Go through another Chicago winter. We, we pray for those who are affected by the cold in much different ways than most of us. Those who uh, don't have proper shelter, who don't have proper winter gear. Those who are suffering, those who don't have heat and warm buildings to go to. God, that you would protect, that you would provide, that there would be ways in which that you would show up to care for them. God, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of everything this life continues to throw at us because the world has not stopped moving just because we are in the midst of all of this, God, we ask that you would continually bring us together, us, CF, bring us together, bind us together, help to grow us in our relationship with one another, help us to grow even more so in our relationship with you, that we might pursue you above and beyond and, all, and in all things. God, you are doing a work. You are always doing a work. And now more than ever, there's, this is a time and a, a season in which we can try and see what it is that you're doing. Pay attention and, and, and slow down and hear what you have to say. But God, help us to do that. Lord, as we open your word this morning, you have a message for us. You have something you are calling us to this morning. And so I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to believe and hands and feet to respond to what it is you have for us today. 
Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in chapter 4, starting in verse 12. I'm going to read it, and then we'll go back uh, and kind of walk through it. Brothers and sisters, I entreat you, because I become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed by you. That last, verse 20, I wish I could change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. We've, we've seen Paul say this a couple of times. I'm perplexed. I'm, I'm flabbergasted. Yes, I'm at a loss for words. And even here, even for Paul, you know, sometimes you send a text, you send an email, and emotions or sarcasm or different, different things don't necessarily come through in text. I think that's what Paul's kind of experiencing here in verse 20. He says, I wish I could change my tone. I wish you could understand how I'm feeling we could do this face to face because I don't think you're quite getting it because he has to bounce from tone to tone. He has to kind of bounce the way he's addressing them in this letter. And he said some very harsh, strong things. And now in these verses that we're reading this morning, this section, Paul kind of goes a little bit more of a personal appeal to the Galatians. He says, brothers, brothers and sisters, it's this personal caring address. It's much different than a couple chapters ago when he said, oh, you foolish generation, or you foolish Galatians. He says, I, I entreat you. I'm begging with you. I'm pleading with you. You don't beg and plead and entreat yourself to people who you don't care about. Paul is deeply invested and cares about the spiritual health and well-being of the people. And his advice, his pleas for them, is for them to be like he is, as he has already been as they are. And in one sense, Paul could say, you know what? I've been where you are, Galatians. I've, I've lived the way you're trying to live. I've lived with such a zeal and fervor for the law that it led me to destroy God's church. I was all in on everything the law had to say. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Everything that it meant to try and win and earn and be controlled and, and even enslaved by the law, I was all in on all of it, and it didn't work. It didn't get me anywhere. Paul can also say, I, I am as you are now. I am free. I'm free under the grace purchased for me by the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm free to live in and by and through the Holy Spirit in me. I'm free to live this God-honoring, God-glorifying way that is not dictated and demanded by the law. I'm free to live without the restrictions the law placed on the Israelites and still be considered God's child. Because that's really at the heart of what we've been talking about throughout this letter is that these, these Gentile Christians aren't living like the Jewish Christians and the Jewish leaders have issue with that. Paul says, I've lived that way. I'm living that way. I, I'm living outside of what the law expects. I, I am as you are. 
I'm free to be a child of God, not consumed by whether or not God likes me because I know he likes me, and whether or not I'm impressive enough because I know on my own I'm not impressive enough, but rather I rest in knowing that God likes and loves me and calls me his child. So this is not Paul boasting. It's not him saying, look, come be like me because I got it all figured out. I beat the system. I'm perfect. I got it smooth and easy. In fact, quite the opposite. Paul, in other letters, calls himself the chief of sinners. In Romans, he talks about how he struggles because he does things he doesn't want to do, and then he doesn't do the things he does want to do. Paul never claims perfection. He claims Christ. Remember in chapter 2, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In his letter to the church in Philippi, to to the Philippians, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we've taken that verse and we've done a lot with it, but it's not actually about like running a marathon or getting today's wordle in two tries. It's about being content in any and every circumstance, having joy regardless of what the world throws at you. And Paul says, I can do that because I have Christ. Paul knew everything outside of a relationship with Jesus is worthless, failing, and fleeting. Pastor Alistair Begg says, the beauty of the gospel is not that it is a fix-all, but rather that God is enough. It's not about being perfect. It's about pursuing Christ and pursuing him together because we don't always get it right, and so we need one another. Paul, calling the Galatians, be like me. When he says, be like me, it is truly what all Christians should be saying, not only to our unbelieving friends, but to one another. This is what it means to be a disciple maker and to spur one another on to good works. Not saying, I've got it all figured out, but rather, look, I love Jesus, I'm trying to pursue him. You love Jesus, you're trying to pursue him. Let's do this together. And in doing it together, we encourage one another. We lift one another up, we support one another, we grow together. That's part of what Christianity is. It's about togetherness. If you look throughout the New Testament, right, the Gospels, it's Jesus and his 12. Together. And then when Jesus leaves, the disciples stay together and the church forms. And then we see people like Peter go out on missionary trips and Paul go out on trips, but they're doing it with other people. They're doing it in conjunction with one another. They're going out to proclaim and live the gospel together. Paul understood he needed other people, that he couldn't do this on his own. And we see in the second half of verse 12, he says, you did me no wrong. And he goes on to talk about this physical ailment that he had which he says was a trial for them, a burden for them. It was a hindrance. It was something that he needed help. He needed to rely on the generosity of others, and that was a burden to them, something that could have led them to scorn and despise him. Now, we don't know what this is. Paul talks about hindrances. He talks about thorn in the flesh in other letters. He talks about these things that were restrictions on him. He talks about the physical limits he has. For me, like, I, I... used to think about Paul and and the way he, especially he writes, you hear uh, his voice and and it seems he's got this like power about him, right? He walks into a room and commands the room. But the more and more you read about Paul, like from his own words and the way he talks about himself, I don't think Paul was like a dude. You know what I mean? Like as far as like what we consider to be manly, I don't think that was Paul. He didn't speak particularly well. He had some kind of Uh, some kind of physical ailment, probably tied to his eyes. Some will think he might have suffered from malaria and suffered from the results of that, or more specifically, um, ophthalmia, which is an eye condition. 
There's another spot in Acts where he addresses the high priest, and he does so with uh, not as much respect as maybe you should. And somebody says, how can you talk to the high priest like that? And he responds and says, I didn't know that was the high priest. Paul's a Pharisee of the Pharisee, and those dudes wore real big pointy hats. You knew who, who, who they were, but we think that maybe he couldn't see really well, that his eyes made it an issue, which is also part of why most of his letters he talks about somebody's dictating for him. And when he does write, he writes in big, bold letters, I think mostly because he couldn't see all that well. Paul wasn't all that impressive of a physical person. And so he had these physical ailments, and at this time, many linked physical, uh, physical issues with spiritual ones. Right? We see in the Gospels, the disciples see a blind man, a man who's been blind since birth, and they ask Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents? Why is he blind? But that way of thinking, it would have been easy for the people to see Paul's condition, whether, whatever it was, and brush him off or ignore him or even despise him for it. But instead, they do the complete opposite. They welcome him to the community. They celebrated him, he says. It seemed that for him to be with them, they considered it a blessing, he says. And in verse 15, Paul says, look, I, I know that you were... If you were able, you would have plucked your own eyes out to give them to me. That's how much I felt loved and cared for, that if you were able, you would have gouged your own eyes out for me, which is a really gross way of saying he felt very cared and provided for, and it's another clue to us that maybe his issue had to do with eyes. Paul shows up, and he's among the people. And though he was not impressive physically, he was even weak and sick in some form. That's why he stops and be, to be with them anyway, because he needed to take a rest. He shows up weak and sick and in need of help, and they embrace him, and they love him. And in turn, he shared with them the most important, most precious thing he had, the gospel. He preached Jesus and him crucified. He preached grace and forgiveness. He preached of the new life and freedom found by putting your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and that alone. That salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. He preached truth. And so in verse 16, when he says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? What he's saying is, look, I showed up and you, you cared for me and you loved me. You would have given me your own eyes if you could. And I preached the gospel then, and I'm preaching it to you now. You're in a bad way, and this legalism, this darkness you are pursuing, it's going to destroy you. So am I now the bad guy because I'm telling you something you don't want to hear? We need those people in our lives. Those ones who will tell us when we are wrong, when we are in sin, when we are in darkness, or even better yet, when we're on our way into the sin and the darkness before we get there so that maybe we can avoid it. We need those people who will say, hey, you're wrong in this. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And in Proverbs 12, 6, it says, the words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright delivers them. It is the responsibility for us as Christians, to be lights in the darkness, even when that means you got to shine your light into the eyes of your brother and sister and blind them a little bit with it. Now, I say that, and too often we use that as an excuse to be rude and mean and hurtful and even spiteful, and we cover it by saying, well, I'm just being honest. I'm just speaking the truth. Paul tells the church in Ephesus, speak the truth, but do it in love. 
and do it so that you are building one another up. Don't do it just because you feel like you need to say something, but do it so that the other person is growing and pursuing Christ more. Yes, we say hard things. Yes, we say things people might not like, but we do so in order that we are building one another up to be more like Christ. Not because someone is doing something that really comes down to personal preference and we just don't like it. Or because they do something that we have deemed in our own minds, this is not what a Christian is supposed to do. When in actuality, it's not a sin issue, it's just we don't like it and we don't think Christians are supposed to act that way. And if that's the way you're thinking, if that's the way you judge and view people, you are doing exactly what Paul is writing against here with the Galatians. The Galatian leaders, those Jewish leaders, were saying, this is not the way you're supposed to do things. When Christ himself has said, no, it's okay, there's freedom here, there's grace here. In one of his letters, Paul writes to to Timothy, and he tells the young pastor, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and not season. Preach the word, proclaim truth because he says in first timothy 4 for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching they will have itching ears that will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths we live in a day when and time where we have more access to more information than ever in throughout history and with that access comes with it a seemingly unending amount of voices. Some of them are fact, some of them are opinion, some are myth, some are history, some are loud and angry, some are quiet and angry. We have created this buffet of viewpoints of which people increasingly pick and choose how to shape their worldview. And while getting a broader view of the world and how to shape our world can be a great benefit, The danger is that built into this buffet that has been created is the selfishness and entitlement that humans carry with us. And so we pick a viewpoint, we pick a stance, a belief, and once we like it, once we kind of embrace it, we will dig our heels in and create around ourselves this echo chamber that only reverberates the other voices that we like and the things that support what we already believe to be true. And as soon as there is something or someone that disagrees with what we have decided to be truth, then we will argue and fight against and slander and even eliminate that voice from our lives, regardless if it's a politician, an author, a pastor, a church, or even a family member, we'll just cut them out. Brothers and sisters, be very careful what it is you're using to scratch your itching ears with. We all want to be right. We all want to be seen as wise. But when the desire to be right and wise drives us to ignore and even attack opposing viewpoints, our motive is revealed to not be about Christ and his glory, but ourselves and our own glory. We want to be the smartest person in the room. We want to be the person that everybody looks to. And that trap will confine us and hinder us and can even hurt others. And it's that way of thinking that Paul is fighting against here in this passage. When we get down to verse 17, He talks about these these Jewish leaders, and he says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. Paul is poking holes in the motives of the false teachers, these leaders who have come in. And really, this is the blueprint, not only for false teachers and liars, but it goes back to what we talked about in verse 8, those things that would entrap us and enslave us. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. 
Drink this and you'll be cooler. Wear these clothes, you'll be more attractive. Drive this car, live in this place, support this cause, and you will be the greatest. They make much of you because they want something from you. This is the very heart of advertising and marketing and economics in our country, in our world. Make the consumer think that this thing, whatever it is, is the thing. And if they get it, then they will be fulfilled. Then all of life's problems will just fade away. Paul says their desires are not pure. Their hope is to cut the Galatians off from Paul, to cut them off from grace, to cut them off from the gospel so that they focus only on the legalists. They want the control. The leaders want the control. They want to be the loudest voice in the room, so they make everything else a lie and wrong and evil. They want to control the narrative. He says they want to shut you out. Literally, it's cut, lock you out. Cut you off. So that all you have left is them. So that you'll make much of them because they're the only truth left in the building. Because they've gotten rid of everybody else. So that you'll give yourself completely to them. So that they have the power over you. So that they become your savior and your God. And whether it's a toxic relationship, a drug addiction, a false teacher, the playbook is the same. Distract and isolate and eventually destroy. Verse 18, Paul's again trying to help them see what is happening here. He says, look, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you. It's nice to be built up. It's But it shouldn't only happen, it should happen when there's a good purpose, when there's a a proper objective to it, what's what's genuine. And there's nothing wrong with the Galatians feeling good and feeling embraced and cared about and loved. And Paul says, you should feel that way, even when I'm not around, even when we're not having to do this discord, you, you should feel this way. But again, why are you seeking this validation from these false teachers? Where are you finding your fulfillment What's your motive for listening and following them? Because their motive is to cut you off. Their motive is to isolate you from the grace and gospel that you know to be true. So what's your motive for pursuing them? And is it so that you can have your own desires deep down, wicked desires of your heart because you haven't really truly embraced the gospel? Or is it just because they're the loudest voice in the room at this moment because I'm not there? Who or what are you using to scratch those itching ears? When no one is around, how are you getting filled up and reminded of your value and worth and importance? Because the things of this world will always pretend to be able to do that for you and can offer you a temporary fix, a brief shot of endorphins, but that high will fade and you will be left alone, aching and isolated and craving another hit. We've said this before a couple weeks ago, your why matters. Why do you do something? Why do you pursue something? Even God. The why matters. Because if your motives are just to get something done, if you show up on a Sunday just because this is what I'm supposed to do, it's what I always do, and it's just my ritual, it's my habit, are you really truly worshiping God? The lack of genuineness will leave you just as alone and aching because you don't actually want a relationship with God. You just want to feel good. You just want to feel like you're part of something. You don't want the giver of life. You just want the life that he gives. But the giver is so much more important. It's so much more valuable. 
is so much more impressive and he is the one who loves you and is calling you to himself. Paul has this desire and this care for the Galatians that goes much deeper and truer than that of the leaders who are trying to woo them toward this legalistic slavery that they were preaching. We see it come through again in verse 19. He says, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed of you. My little children, again, you hear that compassion. Paul is, Paul is changing tones back and forth. No wonder he, he wishes he was in person because this is back and forth. He says, my little children, I am again in the anguish of childbirth. Paul went through this labor once before with them. When he first ministered to them and proclaimed the gospel and led them to the Lord, now he finds himself in a similar situation as they have gone astray, as they are wandering away from the faith. He again longs for them to come back, and he is anguishing over them. And here we see the difference between Paul and the gospel he preaches and these Jewish false leaders and really any false leader, any false teacher that comes in our way. These leaders want to be made much of. They want themselves to be the object of the people's desires. But what does Paul long for? What is Paul anguishing over and what is he anguishing for? That Christ is formed in you. That's the difference between the false teachers, false leaders, and those who proclaim the gospel of truth, who preach Christ and him alone. The end goal, whether it be a preacher from the pulpit or a brother or sister pointing you to truth, when there's genuineness and compassion, the end goal is always the same because the motivation is always the same, to see one another transformed by and through Christ. And we know Paul is writing, he's, the way he's addressed and talked to these Galatians, he's writing and believes that they are saved, that they are Christians. So this isn't about them like losing salvation or finding salvation for the first time. This is about them needing to be reminded, us needing to be reminded and continually be, that we are continually being made more and more into the image of Christ. This is about us trying to remember that sometimes we need to be refreshed that, and we ask God to refresh our spirit, refresh our hearts in new and real ways. Paul is not giving up on them. He's not abandoning them. How easy it would have been, especially because he's not even there, for him to just wipe his hands, to hear what's going on with that church, and just say, you know what, they're a lost cause. It's too much trouble. It's too much work. I'm done with them. But he labors, he fights, and he cares for them, even from afar through writing a letter to them. Paul cares deeply for these people. And so he continually, with just about every sentence of this letter, does for them the most important and caring thing he can do. He points them to Jesus. He calls them to Jesus. He reminds them of Jesus. He shares about his own experiences so that they might know Jesus better. The most personal, the most profound, the most pressing, the most important, the most compassionate thing one person can do for someone else is to show them Jesus. To tell them of the good news about a God who went to amazing lengths to eliminate the distance between us and himself. He went so far that he would send his son to die for us so that we could have a right standing with him. To help another person, Christian or not, to see Jesus, to see his beauty, his glory, his kindness and power and compassion and love and grace is to help them get a little bit closer to God. To be some small part in the eternal story that God is writing in this creation. God made you. He crafted you. He formed you. He sculpted you. You are his creation. You are not an accident. 
You are not happenstance. You are not a surprise. You are not a random collection of molecules and cells. No, God of all existence said this existence, this creation needs that person in it. He made you. And he knows you. He knows everything about you. Your comings and goings, your dreams and aspirations, your victories and failures. Every decision, every thought, every passion, every fear. He knows it all. He knows the good, the positive, the impressive, and he knows the evil, the wicked, and the sin. He sees it all. You can't hide from him or fool him or get one past him. He knows it all. And he knows it all. He knows the depths of our hearts, and he loves you the same. You, as you are, he loves you. But as a former pastor of mine used to say all the time, he loves you, and he loves you too much to let you stay where you are. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you, to give you new life here and now. Things can be different here and now. The gospel is not just for eternity. It's not just for later. It's for now. It changes everything now to give you rest, to give you hope, to give you freedom. He loves you so much, and he likes you that he wants to spend time with you. He wants you to know him more, and for you, as you know him more, you'll see more and more of him in you. His desire is to see Christ formed in you, to see you grow more and more, to be more and more like Jesus. The mission statement of our church is becoming Christ-like and proclaiming Christ. That's who we are. That's who we want to be. That's what this place is about. We want to be followers of Jesus, pursuing to grow and becoming more and more like Jesus every day. And as we grow in this area, slowly, step by step, we want to tell others what God is doing in and through us. We want to share our story, share our victories and our failures, our, our one step forward, two step back, one step forward, two step forward, two step back. We want to walk and share that with one another because that's real life. That's, that's what we have been called to do is to be honest and open and genuine with one another. Paul's heart for the Galatians is echoed by every pastor of every, every congregation God has called that person to. It reverberates in every one of us. It reverberates in me for each and every one of you here. And for those who aren't here, and for those who have come and gone from our midst, my desire, my heart is that you would know God, know him experientially, know Christ, and that Christ would be formed in you, would be formed in us. That we would experience him, know him intimately, love him and cherish him and enjoy him. And as we do that, as we do that as individuals and we do that corporately together, we might reflect him to this world. That they too might come to know and see how good our God is to taste and see that there is goodness to be found at the cross of Christ. That there is a hope to be found there. Our motives, our drive. When we think about the goodness of God, the the immense love and compassion that God shows for us in sending Jesus to die for us, when we think about how awesome and powerful he is and how much he loves us and he knows us and he's intimately involved in us, how can our drive, how can our motives be found in anything else other than proclaiming the goodness of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light? May we ever and always be those who pursue that marvelous light. Let's pray.
of God. This desire of Paul is the desire, I think, of every one of our hearts. Christ formed in us. Us being made more and more into the image and likeness of your Son. God is a work that only you can accomplish. Because us and our home, we pursue the darkness, we pursue the wickedness, we pursue our own way. Even though our hearts long to be more like you, even though our hearts long to know you more, we get sight of who you are. God, may we labor and anguish for each other to know you more and labor and anguish to, for ourselves to know you more. God, we ask that you would give us a heart and passion and desire to know you deeper. That regardless of how long we have been walking with you, regardless how much we think we know, may we never be truly satisfied May we always want more of you. May we always want to know you deeper. May we always want to long for you more. May we always be hungry and thirsty to be nourished by you. And when that hunger and thirst for truth and for righteousness and for direction and for some kind of stability, when those hunger pains, when those thirsts creep up in us. May we find them and go looking for them in you and not this world. Not in our own actions, not in our own desires, not in anything else but in you because you are the living water. You are the bread of life. God, we thank you for people like Paul and people like, and, and men and women who have labored and anguished for us, for parents and grandparents, for leaders and pastors and, and all the different people who have labored and anguished and are continuing to go to you on our behalf. May we do the same for one another. God, I pray that you would remind the value and importance and privilege it is to lift one another up in prayer, to lift one another up. And regardless of how much we think the other person is, they're set, they're secure, they're taken care of, they're mature, they got it all figured out, Lord, may we continuously be lifting one another up in prayer. May we continuously be pursuing one another in relationship, walking together, lifting one another up, carrying one another when needed, encouraging and challenging. And in those times when we see our brothers and sisters wandering, when we see our brothers and sisters struggling, may we be that light you have made us to be and call them back to, the, to you, even when they might not want to hear it, even when they might not like it. May we proclaim truth so that the Holy Spirit will do what he does. But in order for us to do that, in order for us to, to truly be able to Proclaim truth, we've got to know truth. So God, I pray again that you would give us a hunger and thirst to know you more. 
and as we go into a world that is noisy and loud and dark, may we choose you and your marvelous light each and every moment of each and every day. We thank you and praise you. Amen.